theology, if you've been around the church for a while, you know that uh, when you say blank theology and you invite somebody who studied the issue, who's written on the issue, um, you, you know that most likely there's, there's a long history behind it. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of books that have, have been printed and published and some that still need to be printed and published uh, on whatever subject. We're covering covenant theology, which is one of those very deep wells of truth. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot I could say. Um, I have enough material in my computer and in my head to probably teach a two- or three-hour semester course which is both good and not good because you, you just give me three sessions. So I have a real difficult task uh, before me, and I can't cover all the material. I can't go, I can't, you know, we're not going to look and do a concordance type study of every single use of the word covenant in the Old Testament, every single use of the word covenant in the New Testament. We're not going to do that at all. I'm not even going to tell you what the Hebrew and Greek words are for those, okay? It's fine. It's okay. We have English translations. We can't do a survey of the entirety of the Bible's teaching on covenants either because it would take too long to do that and you would just get a skimming of the top. So the three uh, sessions I have, I'm going to just do like a catechetical study on covenant theology. That means I'm going to ask a question and seek to answer it with scripture texts and, and discussion. Uh, so the three questions we're going to ask, the first one tonight is, why study the biblical covenants between God and man? That's the first question. The second question is, what is a biblical covenant? You know what, I think I skipped ahead. I do want to go back to the other one, if, whether or not you get there back, back there or not. That's okay. The, other, the second question tomorrow morning, what is a covenant between God and man? So why study covenant theology? And then, what is a covenant between God and man? And then, the third question, what is the first covenant between God and man revealed to us in the Bible? Okay, that's, all, that's all we're going to cover. Those three questions and answers to that. Now, when we look at the Bible, like this is my big New American Standard Bible, it is a big book, right? And I'm um, not trying to insult anybody's uh, knowledge here, but it's got two sections, right? A large part called the Old Testament, the smaller part called the New Testament, the 39 books and the 27 books. Um, what's interesting about the Bible is it begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. And what does it end with? It ends with new heavens, new earth. So obviously, if there's an old heavens and earth, and there's a new heavens and earth, something happened. Okay? Or else we wouldn't need a new heavens and new earth. And so what the Bible... Uh, is about is it tells us what happened and the process, the means that God is going to use to remedy, to redeem, to reclaim whatever happened, the fall into sin happened and the curse. OK, um, and God does this through. Who does he do it through the church? Or the Lord Jesus. By the way, at our church, I, I say this. I mean, if you have kids and you try to have family worship or something, you know, when they're really young, they always say, God? Uh, when you ask a question, Jesus? When I ask a question, nine out of ten times, what's the answer? People from my church, Jesus. Okay? And why is that? Because the center of the entirety of the special written revelation of God, the Bible, is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
is the incarnation of the Son of God, becoming one of us, for us, for our benefit, for our salvation. Um, the grand crescendo of the Bible doesn't happen uh, at, at Genesis 1.1, or even at the end. It's, it's, it's found, for instance, in the words of Paul in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, this is when the, the, the cymbals are crashing and the drums are beating louder and louder. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. He assumed our nature, born under the law. He assumed our duties. Why? In order that redemption, in order that He might redeem. So the Bible goes from an old creation to a new creation via or through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central thrust of it. It's all about Him. It's all about the, the plan and process whereby God redeems the elect, and the entirety of creation for his own glory. Uh, Central to the unfolding drama of Scripture is the concept of covenant. If you read your Bibles enough, you know that covenants come up quite often. Matter of fact, if you read your Bible uh, with a, a keen eye toward, like the Davidic covenant, I will ask a question I want to answer. Does anybody know where the Davidic covenant occurs in the Old Testament, the first place. Second, Samuel 7. Here's my next question. Is it called a covenant there? It's not. It is, though, in Second Samuel 23. It is called a covenant in Psalm 89 by David. David in Psalm 89 is reflecting back at revelation he received from God through Nathan the prophet. And he calls what he received from God, where, the, where, where Samuel, or whoever wrote Second Samuel, probably Samuel, um, where he did not use the word covenant in Second Samuel 7, but everybody calls it the Davidic covenant. You know why? God told us it was a covenant. You don't do this at that. You don't do that at this church, do you? God told me. He did. You do too. He told us in the, in the Word. He told us in Scripture that what happened in the revelation of God through, through um, Nathan to David concerning a perpetual king on the throne that would build a house for God that ultimately is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. God tells us through David when he pens Psalm 89 that that was a covenant. Though he didn't use the Word when it was first revealed to him. Which tells us something about the Bible itself which we'll get to in a minute here. But when you go through the Bible, you find this concept of covenant coming up. Uh, I'm going to argue the first place the concept occurs is in, the, in Genesis 1 and 2. That, that'll be tomorrow. But it comes up, with, comes up with Noah. It comes up with Abraham. Who else does it come up with? Moses and, the, and the, the, uh, the Israelites. And it comes up with David. And then there's a new covenant promised in various ways, sometimes in the explicit language, actually only once, the only pl- time that phrase new covenant occurs in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 31. But the new covenant is prophetically spoken about in the Old Testament several times with different words and language. language. And then it's inaugurated by the shed blood of Christ. And so this concept of covenant is important. In fact, I'm going to show you that the Bible is a covenantally structured document centering on the sufferings and glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand the covenant structure of the Bible as it is presented to us in a 
Christocentric or Christoclimactic. I remember I used that word once at a, at a class I was teaching. I thought I was all cool and everything. And one of the guys said, I've already heard that before. I flunked him. <laughs> Christoclimactically. What is the Bible all about? The glory of God. God's going to get glory through what he does in the skull-crushing seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to suffer and then enter into glory, his resurrection. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10. So the first question then is, why study the biblical covenants between God and man? And this is where, uh, yes, there we are. And the answer is because of the overarching structure of the Bible, the written word of God. I've already said that, but I want to show you what I mean by that. Uh, Covenant theology is an attempt to put the pieces of the Bible together around the concept of covenant due to the Bible's overarching structure. Okay, here's what we're not doing. We're not saying, oh, I like this structure. It's out here floating around in the realm of ideas. It Oh, wow, it popped up in the 17th century. They called it the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. Oh, in the tail end of that century, some Baptists got a hold of it and sanctified it. Sorry if you're a Peter Baptist. (laughs) And they changed it according to their understanding of the Word of God. Uh, And I like the way that makes the Bible look. You know, and they take it and put it over the text of Scripture and they read through this grid, and then all these things pop out of the Bible. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, if you read the Bible, there's something very interesting about it. It's covenantally structured, and it's also Christocentric or Christoclimactic. So let's explore this. The fact that our Bibles have two testaments witnesses to its covenantal structure. Um, The Old Testament. And the New Testament, right? Uh, if you have older English versions, I think the RSV of 1952 version says um, the Old and New Covenants printed in whatever form in the year of 1952. Um, covenant and Testament can be, and quite often is, especially the way we use it, they're synonyms. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the documents of the Old Covenant, the documents of the New Covenant, we might say. And some theologians speak in that language. The Old Testament basically corresponds with a covenant God made with ancient Israel at Sinai. Now, um, and then I'm going to try to argue that the New Testament corresponds with a covenant that was inaugurated by the shedding of Christ's blood, the New Covenant or eternal, or a, a, a eternal Covenant, according to Hebrews 13. So, the written word of God before the coming of Christ is vitally connected to ancient Israel and the covenant God made with them at Sinai. I could just read this, huh? The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. By the way, has your pastor ever used the word Pentateuch? They're sitting there sweating bullets going, what what does that mean? Is that a street on West Bakersfield? In West Bakersfield? Pentateuch Boulevard. It means a five-scrolled book. The five books of Moses, okay? The Pentateuch, uh, the five books of Moses, are the historical and theological foundation of the Old Testament. 
Now, if we're on the Bible timeline, okay, over here, and this is the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament. This is the five, first five books of the Bible. I'll just assume most of, most of you, I almost, almost said most of y'all. That's, that's another state. But this Bakersfield, don't you guys talk like that? Matter of fact, what was that TV show? That guy we saw in that truck? Honey, the, the people, the duck people. Yeah, there's a Duck Dynasty guy driving down here. Not too long ago. Are they, I thought they were from Louisiana. Nobody's going to show up in the morning now. Sorry. He was from Oildale, right? Is that the way? He's not from your part of town, right? Uh, anyway, the Pentateuch, okay? The five books of Moses. I'll, I'll just assume... You guys have read the Bible or know enough about the Bible that if you look at those five books, okay, they don't stand by themselves, right? There's, there's a bunch of other books connected to it. But if you read the rest of the books after, what do they quite often look back to? Stuff that Moses wrote about, right? Like, just think about the prophets. The prophets are like God's prosecuting attorneys, aren't they? They scold the people of God for violating what? The, on, the, on the Bible... Book, book line, we're over here with the prophets of the Old Testament, right? They come right before the New Testament. They look back at stuff written by Moses. So that's the theological foundation for the prophets is what Moses wrote. That's the revelation of God they received. And then they're ministering in their own culture and context, bringing the word of God to bear on the circumstances and issues of the, the wayward covenant people. And so they scold them for violating the covenant, but they also do something else too. Not only do they scold them based on their violation of the covenant that Moses, uh, that God revealed through Moses, they also point them not just back, but forward, right? And um, we don't have time to prove this, but the prophets not only look forward to the coming of Messiah, um, it wasn't just like something God plopped into their head. Okay? The promise of Messiah predates the prophets. As a matter of fact, remember when Jesus said, John eight fifty eight, before Abraham before Abraham wait a minute. What do you say? John eight fifty six. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, that's Jesus speaking. My day is the day of Christ, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. Abraham rejoiced to see it, and he saw it and was glad. Did Abraham open the book of Moses up and go, oh, wow. Did he, did he read about the promise of the Messiah in the Pentateuch? If you remember your chronology, Moses wrote after Abraham, right? Moses... You know, sometimes you look at the Old Testament, don't think of it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How would, how would the author know that? How would Moses know that? Well, he was standing there watching it all happen. Wow, day one. You know, he writes it down. Oh, day two, slow down, you know. Okay, creation happens. God fashions Adam after his own image, body and soul, and then puts him in the garden, and then gives him a wife. Uh, Moses isn't staying there eating popcorn, going, watching all these events transpire. 
Okay, somehow, some way, probably through verbal, uh, tr- uh, oral, uh, passing on oral tradition, Moses gets the information, and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he writes Genesis, he writes Exodus, he writes Numbers, he writes Deuteronomy. But Abraham knew the promise of Messiah prior to the inscripturation of the promise of the Messiah by Moses in the Pentateuch. Very interesting. Which means there was a promise of a Messiah before the Bible was written. First time I thought about this, somebody probably said it, and it blew me away. I said, no, wait a minute, no. The Bible and the Bible alone. Well, that's true. Okay, There was a time when the Bible was not. And then when Moses ends up writing these things down, like Genesis 3.15, the context of a curse... Genesis 3.15 is actually a curse on the serpent and a blessing to mankind, the promise of a skull-crushing seed of the woman. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Uh, the Son of Man has appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. John echoes the language way back in Genesis 3.15. But again, Moses just didn't write this down as it was happening. It had already happened. God had already pronounced the curse. There was a promise, a seed promise of the Redeemer in that language, and it was passed on to others. Moses, or Abraham, knew the promise, knew the Messiah based on a promise that God had revealed prior to Moses writing it in the Bible. Anyway, Moses... Um, what's the subject again? Covenant theology. Uh, Moses, what were we doing here? I got off the... I got off the it's like I'm, I'm a record, a thing you jumped, you know. Train went around over and my apartment started shaking up. Uh, Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy for Old Covenant Israel. By the way, most scholars believe that, you know, as Israel was, was saved by God, by his mighty, by his arm, which is a figure of speech for his, his power, but God powerfully pulls them out of Egypt. Remember? And then he brings them to the promised land. It takes a generation and a half to get there because of their waywardness. But nonetheless, he does that. Moses is involved with that. Moses writes about that in the book of Exodus. But it had already happened. Then Moses goes with the people of God and God keeps revealing stuff to Moses. Moses is writing the books. We Probably he finished writing, obviously he finished writing before he died. He didn't die, die and then wrote the books, okay? But he didn't make it into the promised land. Remember that? He didn't, didn't make it into the promised land. God's, God, God um, um, chastised him. So he died before that. So he wrote the books prior to them entering into the promised land. But it's all about, especially Exodus through Deuteronomy, is all about what? Israel, the covenant God made with them, and the law that they were to obey, the promises of the covenant and the and the, the, the blessings and the curses of the covenant. It's all about that. And then when the rest of the books of the New Testament come, uh, it's all about what God had revealed through Moses. They're just applying it to different circumstances and situations. So the written word of God starts with Israel as God's covenant nation, and it incorporates it into some things previous. It incorporates into it, the written word of God, things that were previously revealed by God in space and time on the earth or acts of God like creation. Moses incorporates that into um, the Pentateuch. The rest of the Old Testament assumes the Pentateuch as its historical and theological foundation. 
as I've said before. The writings of the Old Testament assume the five books of Moses. The prophets were, as I said, God's prosecuting attorneys who also pointed to the future. They both scolded the ancient people, it's like I've heard this before, for breaking God's covenant and held out promises which terminate in Christ. I already said that. I just got cut up to the notes, which is encouraging. Is there a fan? It's, it's, it's warm. I'm warm. Um, but just think about that. They went back to Moses for their theology. And they were, by the way, the prophets were theologians. Okay, They were looking at the circumstances of, of ancient Israel. They go back to their textbook, the Pentateuch, and under the inspiration of God, they're unique theologians. They're not like us, okay? Um, they're unique because they're inspired and appointed by God to do this. They are writing, which ends up being revelation, interacting with this culture and such circumstances of the life of ancient Israel based on previous revelation. So they're theologians doing that. So they have previous theolo- uh, theology, Moses, that they're utilizing, and also pointing the people to future theology. Doesn't John Piper have a book? Oh, it's called Future Grace. The Prophets. What was the future theology of the prophets? Remember I said 90-something percent of the time the answer to my question is going to be Jesus. What did the prophets point to? The sufferings and glory of the Messiah. Matter of fact, if you listen to, Rome, listen to Romans 16, 25-27. By the way, I said before something like, we know this because God told us. Listen what God's word tells us about the prophets. This is God telling us. This is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And watch this. Now is manifested... Uh, that is the, the that's the incarnation, and by the scriptures of the prophets. Okay, so this mystery of the gospel and Christ and the incarnation of the Son of God was first mentioned and revealed to mankind by the scriptures of the prophets. That's the Old Testament. According to the commandment of the eternal God, He has made known to all the nations, leading to obedience um, of to the obedience of faith. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 10-12. As to the salvation, to this salvation, Peter's telling the audience he's writing to, as to the salvation that you now enjoy. We could say this to ourselves as well. If we're believers in Christ, if our only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness, and that alone, not anything we add to it, all Him, then we're enjoying this salvation that Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 1, 10-12. He says this, And this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Who are these prophets? It's the Old Testament prophets he's talking about. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted, the Spirit of Christ in the prophets is predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. These are the prophets, consciously, okay? Using their minds, thinking about what was being revealed to them. 
what other information did they have besides what they might have received via special revelation themselves as prophets? They had the other documents of the Old Testament, right? The prophets were prophets uh, who spoke on behalf of God, but they also knew that they, they, they existed in a long stream of prophets. Thank you. You did give me one. I think I left it in my bag. I was kidding before. But. Okay, so these prophets, um, they, they had not only the written word of God, okay, and that they had this the unique ministry of the Spirit in conjunction with their own minds as they were writing, and they were thinking, they were using their heads about this revelation that was coming to them, indicating as the Spirit of Christ in them was predicting the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow the Messiah's sufferings. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Sometimes you ever wonder, how much did the prophets know? I remember I used to think, well, they only knew what they wrote. That's the way I used to think. And then you study more of the Bible itself, and then you sit in a few classes, maybe read a few books, and you go, you know what? They, they, had to, they weren't just little guys sitting up in a cave someplace all by themselves. They, they, they lived within a community of prophets. They talked about these things. They, you know how like we like to do theology as Christians and think about the glory of God and the incarnation of Christ and, and, the, and the death and resurrection of our Savior and eternal life? We're not the first to show up on the face of the earth that likes to think about those things. And if Abraham, without the uh, Old Testament Scriptures, could rejoice to see the day of, of Christ, uh, and he did, and he saw it in his mind, you know, he, he, he had an eschatological glimpse, not that he got a vision of Christ, but that he knew that God had promised to send a, an anointed one, a, a, a Messiah. How much more so, this school of prophets that had inscripturated revelation from God in the documents of Moses and other Psalms and things of that nature. So they, 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 they knew that they weren't serving themselves. As they wrote, we're serving, we're talking about a future day. So you see, the prophets didn't just say you violated the covenant. They also said, but, but mercy's coming in the future. The sufferings and glory of Christ. They weren't serving themselves but you, the first century generation. We could say it by extension by us too. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I, I always, somebody, a seminary buddy of mine gave me a book one time. He quoted this text and he said something like, you know, may God give you the, the ability to speak those things into which angels long to look. Angels are fixated on God's plan for the redemption of sinful image bearers like us. The doctrine of salvation just doesn't fascinate you know, Calvinists. Angels, though, long to look into these things. So we know that the prophets of the Old Testament both assumed... Moses' writings and predicted the sufferings and glory of Messiah. And we know this because God has told us in His Word. We're putting the Bible together. We're allowing the Bible 
to become a commentary on the Bible. You ever thought of that before? The Bible quite often comments on the Bible. And when it does so, every single time, it's infallible. So you, you need a commentary on the Bible? The first place to go is where? The Bible. See if the Bible picks up on a text that I'm reading through someplace. That's why um, you're going to have G.K. Beale come, right? See these all these scripture references on the side? When I was a young Christian, I used to look all those up. And then I stopped doing it. Now, I do it a lot now. Because it tells me quite often, sometimes they're wrong, but it tells me quite often where in previous revelation, a word, a concept, a name sometimes, a place, is mentioned. And the more and more you do that, you see that quite often... um, Watch this. I'm going to use big words. Subsequent revelation... Okay. This doesn't work. You know, the first person can tell me that wasn't any good. It's that big dog right there. That's why it's intimidating. He's got the cool name. He's huge. And then if it's not any good, he's going to be the first to text me and tell me. Listen, subsequent revelation, okay, that's revelation over here on the Bible top timeline, often makes explicit or clear what is implicit in antecedent or prior revelation. Okay, class, repeat after me. Subsequent revelation often makes explicit what is only implicit in, in antecedent revelation. Okay? So the Bible sometimes picks up on previous revelation and explains it more in, in more detail. might use different words, but it explains the concepts. It's also important to note that much of the Old Testament is God's infallible commentary on his own works and promises. What's the first work of God that we're told about in the Bible? Creation, right? But the act of creation predates the inscripturation of the act, right? The writing. Like I said before, Moses wasn't there. Oh, day one, you know. Okay, The act happens. Then later, for God's purposes of redemption, he both records it through Moses and quite often interprets the act for us. For instance, just the bare act of God's powerfully saving Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Just the act itself. It might display God's power, right? But we need him to tell us, why did you do that? They're sinners. Okay, they're whining, complaining covenant breakers. Well, they're going to be. Because we read this whole story. And you're saving these people. Why are you doing that? It's, it's a picture of redemption. But we would know that just by a bare act of God saving a nation and giving them their own land. Unless God interpreted the act for us. Okay, so God acts. Creation. Fall. And then he has a redemptive purpose. And then God interprets his acts. In the scriptures. This is important to understand. God acts on the earth. Then God interprets his own acts. For example. As I already used. As I already said. God creates. Then explains the fact, meaning, and implications of creation for us in his written word. Those things happen first. Then God explains what those things mean. What came first? The New Testament 
or the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. The incarnation, sufferings, and glory. The historical, redemptive historical apex of God's revelation to us happens first. And then what happens? God explains it. Okay? The New Testament. There's a pattern here. God acts. God interprets his own acts. Uh, God's acts are not self-interpreting. In other words, um, Jesus rising from the dead. If somebody just saw Jesus rising from the dead, that's all. They knew nothing else about anything. All they saw was this man rose from the dead. They, they, they couldn't come up with the fact that this was the last Adam. There was the first Adam who represented humanity. He plunged humanity into sin. But God has a rescue plan. God has a rescue program. This is the last Adam. The only other sinless son of God who represents others in life and now death because of sin. And he rose from the dead. as a, I know why he rose from the dead. You know, nobody would ever come up with that. Okay, But that's in fact what was happening. God acts. God interprets his acts. Matter of fact, God pre-interpreted his acts through the prophets. How do we know that? God told us that the prophets spoke about the sufferings and glory that would, would come. Why is there suffering in the first place? Because of the curse. Why is there the curse? Because of the fall. Where did all this start then? When Adam sinned. What's glory? Sufferings. We know what that's all about. The Son of God came to suffer as punishment for our sins. But it says the prophets pre-interpreted God's act in the Son by talking about His glory as well. I keep getting off my notes. Remember that verse? We all probably memorized it. Romans 3.23. What does it say? For all have sinned, have fallen short of the glory of God. Who's the first sinner? But besides Paul, you know, among whom I am chief, he said. Who's the first human being that sinned? Adam. What did he fall short of? Glory. We'll get back to that. But you know where Jesus takes us? Remember the old songs of the glory train? Choo-choo and all that stuff. This train's bound for glory. He takes us to glory. Whatever glory means, that's where he takes us. I think I know what it means because God told me. And I'll tell you what God says in his word later about that subject. But God creates, God explains the fact, the meaning, and implications of creation for us in his written word. So Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes the account of creation after it takes place. And another example, the, the other one I've used, it's the biggest one in the Old Testament, the, the exodus from Egyptian bondage is where God saves his people, then subsequently explains the redemptive aspect or meaning of that salvation, that historical salvation, through his written word. So that Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes the account of the Exodus after it took place, explaining its relevance to the people of God. So the Pentateuch is, the foundation, is foundational to the rest of the Old Testament. Now, though the New Covenant 
in Christ's blood was promised in the Old Testament. It was not fully realized uh, or formalized as a covenant until the death and resurrection of Christ. But it is, that is, the coming Messiah and his sufferings and glory. It is that to which the Old Testament pointed. If we ask the question, what's the, what's the biggest reason that the Old Testament exists? What's the answer? Jesus. The Old Testament promises. Okay? And what I'm arguing now is we ought to study covenant theology because it wasn't until God enacted this covenant with ancient Israel that he starts giving us written revelation. Okay? Okay? That's, that's, what, that's when Moses wrote it. Right after the covenant was inaugurated. Not long after that we get... Written revelation. What do we get? The Pentateuch. How does the Pentateuch function in the Bible? It's the historical and theological foundation of the 39 books we call the Old Testament. Here's, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Um, how many authors, Old Testament authors? Come on, pastors. Don't you guys know these? Maybe these are homeschool kids here? They usually know those things. <laughs> how many authors in the Old Testament? 39 books is like 20 authors, let's say, okay? What's the time frame that's written over like 1,500 years? Uh, what is the covenant that was enacted that brought forth the written revelation of God? The covenant that God made with, the ancient, with ancient Israel. 20-some authors, 1,500 years in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son. One generation. God explains it. I mean, it doesn't say in the Bible, therefore that's important. But I, I think we can kind of, we can use our, this guy's got a brain, right? We can use our minds and think through this. This must be important. If, if the prophets spoke about the sufferings and glory of Messiah, if the Old Testament took that long to complete, and the New Testament, one generation, whatever happened over here is very important. It is, as we'll see as we look at some texts uh, at some point. This is question number one, right? Okay. I'm preaching here on the Lord's Day, all five, mass, uh, five services, right? Uh, okay, so we, I just looked at the Old Testament. That's all we did. said, look, I think we should study covenant theology. Why? The Bible is covenantally structured around these two major covenants. When they're enacted historically in space and time, then written revelation comes. Okay? That's the Old Covenant. Then the New Covenant is enacted by the shedding of blood, the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. Then written revelation comes. That's why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the Bible, since it's covenantally structured, we ought to understand that structure, that concept through the scriptures. By the way, the New Testament's similar to the Old Testament, right? What's the Pentateuch of the New Testament? The Gospels. The Gospels. Who said that? You're coming back to Palmdale with us. She's going, Palmdale? Um, yes, that's right. Do you see how the Gospels function similarly? Right? The historical and theological foundation of the New Testament is what? It's the Gospels. The Gospels reveal to us God's greatest revelatory act. The capstone. The apex 
of revelation, which is the eternal Son of God assuming our nature to live and die and rise on our behalf. That's Christianity right there. The incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ are what the Old Testament uh, pointed to. We've already looked at some texts. We're going to look at some texts uh, at some point, maybe tomorrow about that. But the sufferings and glories, what the Old Testament said would happen, that's what the Gospels record for us. The sufferings and glory of the Messiah. His life, his state of humiliation, and then his state of exaltation. His sufferings and his glory. The Old Testament said it would happen. It happened. The Gospels record the historical data for us. The book of Acts, what does the book of Acts do? He's already entered into his glory. By the way, the first two verses of the book of Acts, listen to this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's talking about the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You might hear people say, Luke Acts. Luke, volume one, Luke, volume two. Luke, volume one, sufferings and and initial glory of the Messiah. Luke, volume, that's what Jesus began to do and teach when he was on the earth. The implication is, I'm writing this second volume, the book of Acts, and it's not about what Jesus began to do and teach when he was on the earth. It's about what he is continually doing and teaching Though he's left the earth, he's still still teaching and doing things on the earth from the right hand of the Father in heaven in heaven. So it is a the book of Acts is a divine commentary on what Jesus continued to do upon his entrance into glory after inaugurating the new covenant in his blood in fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The Gospels record the great act of God that needs interpretation. Divine, infallible interpretation. Not just a bunch of people scratching their heads going, wasn't he dead? Okay? It needs divine interpretation. This was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. This is the incarnate mediator. This is the one specially anointed. This is the one the prophets said it's happened. Uh, By the way, the New Testament, early new, uh, Christians and the, the writers of the New Testament, they didn't interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus. They interpreted Jesus in light of the Old Testament. I used to think I'm getting this mixed up in my head. I better be careful here. I used to think they interpreted the Old Testament in light of Jesus. In other words, they had the Old Testament and they thought about it one way. Then Jesus came and go, oh, it means something totally different. It's got a new meaning now. It's more like this. By, by the way, you know there was a messianic... Well, Abraham... Well, I'm going to read a quote from Augustine. Augustine, you know, early church father... He, he said, the fathers, that's all the believers before Christ, they were Christians before the name. Why? Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not our works. 
but in Christ alone. Now, we have the full revelation, okay? But the promise predates even the writings of Moses. Like I said, Abraham rejoiced to see his day, Christ's day, and he saw it. So it's a divine, the New Testament, or the book of Acts, is a divine com- commentary on what Jesus continued to do upon his entrance into glory after inaugurating the new covenant in his blood and fulfillment of Old Testament promises. So that the New Testament writers have his, a redemptive historical act of God okay, to interpret, but they don't interpret it as a brand spanking new act of God. They go back and they say, huh, this, what just happened? You know what it is? It's not something new. It's that. It's what the prophet said would happen. You ever read the book of Acts? They do that in the sermons especially. This, what you see here at Pentecost, is that which Joel said would happen. It's not like, oh, the Jews, they kicked the Messiah in the shins. God's got to do another plan. This is not any good. Now he's going to do the church. This is totally different. It's not, no, no, no continuity with anything in the past. It's not what it is at all. Read the... Read, Especially the Gospel of Matthew, who, by the way, was a Jew, right? And the Jews, so that's why he dips into the Old Testament dozens of times, okay? And he basically says, this, this is what happened here in space and time on the earth, in our own generation, it's that. It's, it's what Isaiah said would happen. It's what, it's what Hosea said would happen. It's what, you know, whatever prophet. The epistles, think of the epistles, they draw out the theological and practical implications of the inauguration of what? The new covenant. Okay. Why do we have epistles? To tell us what the sufferings and glory of Christ having been accomplished. What does that mean? Does that change anything? Is worship the same? Do we have all these types and shadows and prefigurements of the Messiah that is to come? Excuse me. In our worship? If he's already come? No, they, they can't function that way anymore. If, the, if all the t- worship of the Old Covenant was typological, pointing forward to the coming of Christ and the implications of the inauguration of the New Covenant and His kingdom and church and the house of David and all that stuff in the Old Testament, okay, if it was pointing forward and He's come, then something certainly something has to change. So at least we know this much. Public worship looks way different now than it used to. What was public worship like for the Israelites, three times a year they had to make their trek to Jerusalem for the three national festivals and they had to keep, keep Saturday Sabbaths. Do we do that? No. When Jesus... Well, I've got to get into that. Now I'm getting to my Gospel of John sermons. The epistles are theological interpretations and applications of the having been inaugurated new covenant, which was promised in the Old Testament, was inaugurated in space and time by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the epistles are the so what, what are the implications for the people of God? That's what the epistles are. And then the book of Revelation is, is uh, it's basically whatever your pastor says it's about. <laughs> it's, it's ultimately, it points ultimately to the consummation, Right? Due to what? The work of Jesus. Uh, the inauguration of and formalized new or eternal covenant. 
It's interesting, and I think I noted this already, but just note this again, that the end of the Bible is the glorification of the beginning of the Bible. Ever thought of that? Uh, which makes the, the end better than the beginning. Which I didn't bring any copies of. But the title of a book. Somebody my wife knows wrote. The end is better than the beginning. The end of the Bible. Now the beginning of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And toward the end, Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the Bible is the story of redemption from the old to the new. It goes from a good creation gone bad to a new creation via the redemption or the redemptive work of the incarnate Son of God, who is, by the way, the promised skull-crushing seed of the woman, who the prophet said would come and suffer and enter into glory. Matter of fact, you know what the prophets also said? That there would be a, an end of all, uh, of all the older Mosaic Covenant temple worship too. And yet the prophets talk about temple and worship. But, not, but they also say that sacrifices are going to be put to an end. Not in those exact words. But there's the prophetic rescinding of the ancient sacrifices in the prophets themselves. So they, they even foresaw a day where public worship was going to look different. Um, that's John 4, where Jesus tells the woman at the well that uh, salvation is of the Jews. You, know, you do your worship this way. Doesn't make it right, by the way. But he who worships God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I think he's, he's telling us that there's, there's new forms for public worship coming there. Um, but again, my brain's leaking over to the John sermons that I stopped preaching about six or eight months ago or longer and have to get back to. So the, the end of the Bible is better than the beginning due to the work of Christ connected to ultimately the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, okay? So, the, what's the second? That was the first point. Keep going down. There's a second point someplace. The documents of the Old Testament are vitally connected to the Old Covenant, and the documents of the New Testament are vitally connected to the New Covenant. I just said that, right? Okay, let's go to the second one. The covenant structure of the Bible is discussed above. Uh, wasn't there a number two? Oh, there it is. Covenants form the framework. Structure around the structure around which God reveals His plan of salvation in Christ. Sorry, you were right. Good note number three. Look at he's back there. He's going. I was right. <laughs> uh, we all know what that means. If you're right, somebody was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> I came all the way over here to have your sound guy tell me I was wrong. Number three. The unfolding of God's revelation to us is both consummated in Christ and covenantally structured. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also has made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The New Testament is the divine uh, explanation of the implications of those verses that I just read. If the biblical, if biblical revelation is consummated in Christ, okay, it's find its goal, it's telos, it's the older way of putting that is scope, which sometimes we think, wow, it's a large scope. It's a wide scope or wide lens. Scope in the older way, in the older theologians, meant, well, what's that thing right in the middle of the target? Bullseye. Center. The telos, the goal, the end toward which everything tends. The Old Testament leans toward Christ and the New Testament says that which the Old Testament leaned toward is now here. So if biblical revelation is consummated in Christ and formulated around covenants, then it's about Christ and must be interpreted in light of Christ and the covenants, right? You're supposed to say amen or right because you're not going to. I'm not going to let you out of here until you agree with me because that's what I've been trying to argue the whole time. Okay, it's all about Christ and the covenants. Therefore, we better if we're going to study. We can't just study covenants divorced from Christ. That would be terrible. It'd be ripping the covenants out of the context in which God has revealed them. But listen, studying Christ apart from covenant theology does the same thing. It's all interwoven. If you're going to understand the Bible properly, you have to understand the covenantal structure of it and then how God uses the concept of covenant throughout the history of the Bible, starting in the garden and ending in glory. Because God relates to us through, through covenant. Um, one man put it this way a long time ago. So in all our search after the mind of God and the Holy Scriptures, we are to manage our inquiries with reference to Christ. Then he adds these very important words. Therefore, the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New. Because it's God's commentary, the New Testament, on God's word, in light of God's act in Christ. Okay, so the the prophets they were fuzzy, not because they were dumb or slow. They didn't have the whole thing. Okay, they knew Messiah was coming. They knew he was going to change a lot of things. They knew he was going to suffer and enter into glory. They didn't know which person it was and things of that nature. He comes, and then God interprets it theologically for us through the writers of the New Testament, and that becomes... Then we can go, ah, that's what ultimately... That's God's intent in those words of the prophet Isaiah. Or ultimately, the intent of God's word in Genesis 3.15 was the incarnation and sufferings and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know? God told us. Where did he tell us? In the written word of God the Holy Scriptures. But then he adds this. Therefore, the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New. There we have the clearest light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining on us in the face of Jesus Christ by unveiling those counsels of love and grace that were hidden from ages and generation. The the Old Testament points to and leans toward Christ with its promises and types of Him who was to come. The New Testament 
presents Christ in his sufferings and glory. Christ's sufferings and glory are interpreted by the writers of the New Testament via the Old Testament and the events recorded for us in the Gospels. Remember, I already said that. Okay, they're not just watching Jesus do things and go and interpreting it. They have, they have an Old Testament. So when they end up writing about it, they're going, this, what we, we, what we saw, what we experienced, what our, what our hands handled, it was that which God had revealed he would do through Moses and the prophets and as Jesus says also, the Psalms. The Old Testament contains the bud of redemption. The new is the full flower that is revealed to us slowly and surely and progressively via covenants consummating in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is but a shadow. The new is its substance. In the Old Testament, Christ is revealed, though clothed in promises and types. In the new, that which was promised and typified is fully unveiled. God's hiding glory in the Old Testament. And you know what John says? We beheld His glory. Where do you think that concept comes from? John's not sitting there going, you know, cool words to write down would be, we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. John's a theologian. John's realizing that what God said He would do, God has done it. And it's wonderful to, to realize that. It should give us assurance that God didn't leave His greatest act on the history of the earth, which wasn't creation, by the way. It was the incarnation, suffering, and glory of Christ. Okay? He didn't leave His greatest act for us dummies to try to interpret it. He interpreted it for us. He pre-interpreted it, and then he post-interpreted it. I don't know if you know if that's you know what I mean. After the fact, he he gave us written revelation about it. That's why we have a we have a sure word. We don't have to be back there and see it ourselves. We have a better testimony because you know what? If I was there in the first century, you know how old I'd be right now. Two thousand years old. How much am I going to remember? We can't even we. I can't even remember what happened yesterday. Today's Friday. Yesterday was Thursday. Did I talk to you yesterday or is that today? That was today. See, I can't even remember. Okay? We got something better than eyewitnesses. We got God ensuring that this, the greatest act of God it's interpreted by God Himself. That, that's why He gave us the New Testament. So we wouldn't mess it up. So all of this to say that the Bible is covenantally structured, centering itself on the Lord Jesus Christ and His sufferings and glory. So if we're going to understand the Bible correctly, we must understand it Christologically or Christocentrically and covenantally. And in order to do this, um, well, anyway, I think I hopefully proven that to you. And I'm going to, at this time, land the plane in a weird way. Because I just noticed that my notes were going in a different direction. I don't have time to do that. But the first question was, why study covenant theology? Why study the biblical covenants between God and man? 
And the answer is, because the Bible's covenantally structured. So if we're going to understand it right, we need to understand that concept and how God utilizes it throughout. And it just so happens that we get the icing on the cake, too, because the Bible isn't merely a book about covenants. It's about covenants with a purpose, namely, to get us to glory through what he does in his son. So we get Christ and the covenants. We get, we get the best. Okay. So um, that's it. Uh, do you want me to close in prayer? Thank you for, thank you for listening, putting up with everything. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we, we are thankful, and certainly we can never be thankful enough, enough, but you don't require us to be thankful enough, just thankful, and we are. And we'll be ever grateful because what the Lord Jesus has done for us, we, we could never do for ourselves. Nobody else could ever do it for us. He is the one and only mediator between God and men. He is the one that faithfully kept covenant with God, obeyed all the way from the womb to the grave. Not only did he do that, but his obedience required because he was representing us, sinners. His obedience required obedience unto death because of our guilt and sin so that the Lord of glory was condemned for us. And not only was He condemned for us, but because of His obedience, He was rewarded with life and glory. He suffered and then entered into glory. And it is that glorious state of, um, of existence that we long for and one day will taste because He's going to bring many sons to glory. Nobody can stop Him. This is your plan. Nobody can stop the Almighty. Uh, Even our sins can't stop you from overruling our our folly for your glory and our good. We thank you that we could uh, sit together, think together, and I trust you will bless your word by your spirit to your people. And ask in Jesus' name for your blessing. Amen.